0: You're listening to Notes from the Council Chambers podcast with President Nick J. Mosby.
1: On this episode, President Mosby talks to Kurt Schmoke, former mayor of Baltimore City and the current president of the University of Baltimore, about his tenure and how the city council can move Baltimore forward.
0: to Notes from the Council Chambers. I am your Council President, Nick J. Mosby, and this is our first inaugural edition of, again, Notes from the Council Chambers. It's going to be a frequent opportunity uh, to hear from Baltimore's think leaders, uh, to hear from uh, folks who've contributed a lot to our great city, uh, and to discuss the issues of today, tomorrow, and how we move forward. Uh, I cannot uh, uh, be but excited about the individual that we have on today, uh, his name speaks volumes in rooms not just through this city or state, but through this nation, uh, for who he has been and and the and and the type of commitment he stood upon. And that's our former mayor, that's Mayor Kirk L. Smoke. So, give a huge round of applause for our mayor, our Mayor Smoke. Uh, welcome to the uh, podcast, Mayor Smoke.
1: Well, Council President, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much for inviting me. I didn't realize this was the Inaugural, I, I I I had my Ravens purple. <laughs> I, I would have dressed up a little bit. But, uh, working from home has been uh, pretty uh, uh, challenging.
0: It has uh, been very interesting. It's, it's well, Ravens
1: purple anyway. So, uh, but it's great to see you and congratulations on your election. And I know you're going to have a, a, a great tenure as our uh, council president.
0: Well, you look, uh, when I look at you, I see shoulders that I literally stand on. Um, I tell you about this every time I bump into you. um, But, you know, to the to the listeners out there, uh, Mayor Kirk Schmoke uh, was a role model to me. So my mother uh, was very active in supporting Mayor Schmoke on his first run as mayor uh, when he won. And I tell folks all the time, it was kind of like a microcosm in my household as well as when I went back to school. Uh, that next day at Yorkwood Elementary School, the way my teachers um, were so uh, excited, uh, had so much hope. But it was a microcosm of like uh, President Barack Obama's election, because that was the first time an African-American had won an election uh, to become mayor of Baltimore City. Uh, And uh, that's when I really started to pay close attention to politics. My mother used to always take me uh, to go vote. But, you know, I knew this guy, Mayor Schmoke. You know, I knew who we were. Right. So I, I tell you this story about when we were in Candom Yards and you were in a rocking chair reading to uh, about a dozen of us uh, on Candom Yards field uh, for uh, a city campaign with the Enoch Pratt Library. Do you remember that? Uh, Mayor right. Schmoke? So I was I, I was one of the, I was one of those kids. Huh. <laughs> and, That's good. and guess what? I've never seen that picture. Um, mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I had a friend. Who um, his mother uh, did janitorial services, and they would go into the libraries at night to clean them up. And he said, "I see your picture all throughout, you know, the different libraries we go to." And I said, "Well, get me one because I've never seen that poster." Uh, he 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 wasn't able to get it. Um, and then um, and then uh, another time was uh, at Tuskegee when you were on the board of regents. Yeah. And I saw this guy come off this shuttle bus, and I said, "Is that Mayor Smoke?" And I ran across and I told you who I was. Uh, you gave me your email address. Um, I sent you an email, you didn't respond to me. Oops,
1: but- <laughs> I, I wasn't technologically uh, at the
0: time.
1: My, my recollection though, Mr. President, uh, wasn't Marilyn with you when, you when I saw you both at Tuskegee? I, 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 yeah, I think
0: so. We were walking together and she yeah. didn't know why I darted off. To, right. to run it, to, to see you. you. You were
1: going to the Kellogg Conference Center. That's correct. I do remember that. I, I tell people about that uh, a lot uh, because I, I could tell that you all were committed to uh, Baltimore <laughs> and I was looking forward to seeing that new talent. And then the last time, uh, I, this is where I won an election finally.
0: And um, again, we didn't have any real formal interaction. It's, you just always a person I looked up to. Uh, but this is the the interesting part of this book. So we're at Douglas Memorial Church. Um, Service has just ended. We're about to leave. And I run over to you to introduce myself as a new councilman on the seventh district. And before I'm able to introduce myself, you said Nick Mosby. Yeah. And and that was just a special moment because I had always recognized you in the past. um, But I was just one in a million to folks that you kind of interacted with. But this time, you actually knew who I was. So to kind of come full circle for someone that you look up as a mentor or um, that you aspire to become. Um, that was a special moment for me. Um, but enough about me and all my stories uh, with you, uh, Mayor Schmoke. Um, really want to jump right into it. Um, you were a, a thoughtful uh, person. People understand and know the background um, from Yale uh, to being a Rhodes Scholar to getting your JD at Harvard uh, and then bringing all of your, um, your talent your smarts, your enthusiasm, your data-driven approaches back uh, to the city of Baltimore. The one thing that I, people always kind of point to you uh, about is uh, you being ahead of your time around the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can only imagine that that was a difficult time to take because we understood and know that the nation knew that we were, were grappling with this issue uh, of drugs, illicit drugs in our community. Um And, you know, folks were scared. Folks were afraid. They didn't know how to to respond. And your response was completely different than everyone else. Could you kind of like take us back there uh, to kind of let us know what led you to that decision and how you came out so strongly uh, in the right direction at the time?
1: Well, thanks very much. Yeah, it was a difficult uh, time. And uh, I do believe that progress is being made that uh, you and, and many others have been talking about this whole set of problems as more of a public health problem than a criminal justice problem. But that certainly wasn't the mindset of most uh, community leaders um, back, my goodness, it was 1988 that I made my first uh, comments about that. Uh, Bottom line, and just quickly do you know, I had been a prosecutor, I was state's attorney uh, for five years and before that, uh, an assistant United States attorney. So I had eight years of being on the front lines of the war on drugs. And uh, after uh, the death of a good friend of mine who had been an undercover police officer, I started to really rethink um, the approach and I came to the conclusion that we really could not arrest and prosecute our way out of uh, the war on on drugs. It was uh, more like, uh, similar in a great extent to the 1920s, when we tried to make ours an alcohol-free America by imposing prohibition and trying to eliminate um, uh, the taking and selling of alcohol through the criminal justice uh, system. That was an absolute failure. And uh, there were so many similarities that I just started thinking about it uh, in that fashion and just concluded after doing a lot of uh, study looking at some successful um, models overseas, in Canada and the Netherlands, I concluded that the war on drugs should be a public health war rather than a criminal justice war. And I raised the question at a a conference whether we should explore the decriminalization of, uh, of certain drugs. Now you can imagine at that time, and I know you've pointed this out, that in the late 80s and early 90s, that led to a lot of of legislation that actually increased incarceration. I mean, it, it was a time that um, when, you know, even uh, President Biden, uh, you know, signed legislation that was cracking down, cracking down, uh, and it led to the uh, this century's mass incarceration uh, problem. So I was kind of going against the tide uh, there. But uh, ultimately, more and more people have started to think about it. Um, and recognize uh, that we can't just uh, throw a lot of people in, in jail and assume that that's going to Im- improve the situation. So I'm I'm pleased to see at least the rhetoric now is yeah. more public health uh, than uh, than criminal justice. There's a you know a balance. We because yeah. there are some people that are hooked on drugs, others who are hooked on drug money, and you have to have different approaches for for each of them.
0: I mean, it's always tough. Uh, when you step out there on data-driven, um, result-oriented, fact-based uh, solutions that don't necessarily speak to the emotions or the anxiety of that particular time, and sometimes you're villainized. Walk us through, I guess, like the sacrifice you put yourself in, maybe yourself, maybe time away from your family, maybe um. What you thought your political career could could, could kind of lead you at that point, kind of walk us through yeah. how you were feeling. You were thirty eight years old, right? Literally telling the nation that this was domestic, uh, uh, Vietnam. Um, it was that was the exact quote, right? That's right. That's uh, the
1: war on drugs
0: has become our domestic Vietnam. And 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 you were standing out there by yourself. I, I'll never forget you going on late night television with the Oreos <laughs> jacket, right? And yeah. that became national news. But yeah. let, just walk us through how you were feeling at that time, knowing that you were communicating what all your training, your experience told you was the right thing to do, even though the popular, the overwhelming popular opinion just wasn't, wasn't ready for it.
1: Yeah, the, the one thing I, I learned from uh, the whole experience is language is so important. You know, I was trying to uh, uh, get to the substance of it by talking about um, public health as opposed to criminal justice, but people wanted to just use buzzwords, legalization or decriminalization and decriminalization meant so much, so many different things to different people. And uh, so some of our uh, national political leaders and uh, civil rights leaders uh, were trying to corner me into an area of just, I wanna legalize all drugs and that's not what I said, that's not what I, I meant. And um, so it was pretty difficult on the family. Uh, My son son, uh, actually was at uh, our high school for the arts and um, somebody uh, criticized him. He ran down into the basement and called me and said, what did you say, Dad? course, my, my wife's patients, some people, they would come to see her for their medical procedures and then say, hey, what is it that up with your husband? <laughs> so, um, you, you know, as an elected official at the local level, it's a family affair. And yeah, so, um, yeah the whole family got uh, caught up uh, caught up in it. And, you know, I, I was able to, to testify in, in, in Congress about it. and But most of the congressmen were very dismissive I was on uh, TV a couple of times. The one time that I I, I missed, uh, though, I had gone on Phil Donahue, and uh, then I started getting some criticism locally that maybe I wasn't paying enough attention to uh, my job. So I was getting kind of sensitive to that criticism, and I received an invitation from one young lady named Oprah Winfrey to go on her program, and I declined. Of all oh. that. <laughs> she she has never forgiven me for that and
0: wow you
1: never you you, you might be the only
0: person in history to decline an invite to sit on Oprah's couch
1: i tell you so uh but um it was uh, a, quite a um, a struggle and you asked about what did i give up well i knew that going into uh this uh, conference where i gave the the speech it was uh, a joint conference of the united states mayors uh Conference of Mayors and uh, U.S. Police Chiefs. Um, I uh, told the guy that helped me write the speech, I didn't tell everybody on my staff, but I said, you know, basically I'm cutting off some avenues. If I intend to pursue a higher political career, um, you know, put that on the shelf because that's not going to happen. It, it was, is it a, an exaggeration to say
0: you tore up the speech? I think that's the story I always heard that you yeah. had a prepared speech and you
1: tore it up. That's right. And I rewrote the thing along with one other uh, person and did not tell my staff uh, what I was going to to say uh, that day. But I did read um, segments a segment of a memoir that I had read before from the guy who had been chaplain at, at Yale, uh, Reverend William Sloan Coffin. And he often quoted the hymn of the church, Once to Every Man. And I, I read that and I said, "Well, this is my moment to decide, am I going to Tell them what I really think, or I'm going to hedge and just, you know, continue repeating the litany of the war on drugs. And I decided, nope, uh, this is the time uh, tell it like like I really see it. And fortunately for me, the 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 reaction in the city was was quite interesting. Um, that uh, and it, and it came up in my next uh, election is that. Um, polls showed that overwhelming majority of the people in the city disagreed with my position uh, on the war on drugs, but they gave me, uh, uh, they respected the fact that I didn't change my view. And so when I ran for re-election, my opponent was the one that, that, that was on the defensive because they said, look, we know where Schmoke is on this and we know that the status quo isn't going to uh, achieve a goals. So what's your view about a new approach? Yeah. I didn't have a new approach and so I was I was reelected, even with people disagreeing with the policy, but respecting uh, my, my the fact that I didn't change my view on it. Now, this is gonna be a quick question, but if
0: we could jump back those uh, with 34, 33 years ago, um what would you change would you is there anything that you would change about your approach or your delivery or you know you talking to a another 38 year old yeah. up-and-coming folk person that is really interested in driving real change in their community yeah. what would you tell them that maybe you learned from that experience
1: that that language is vitally important it the the and i learned that not only from my experience but uh reading um book that Governor Mario Cuomo um, uh, wrote when he said it's important for elected officials not only to identify a problem, but to propose a solution. And what happened is that um, one, by using terms like decriminalization as opposed to public health, that had people thinking one way. And secondly, I didn't kind of lay out a whole strategy. I said this is something we need to explore. This would, and whereas people wanted the answer to, well, what's it going to look like in the end? Gotcha. So I should have had a, a laid out a, a, a whole strategy, um, and uh, and and not just look like I'm attacking. Uh, yeah. Problem. So so, so
0: so still coming with your gut and your instincts based off of data and your experience, but having a plan in place before you communicate it to kind of proactively get ahead of
1: the, the opposition. Absolutely. And then people can talk about um, the plan, the substance of the plan and not just get hung up on uh, the uh, the sound bite of it. Got you. Well, I'm gonna ask you for a little advice now. Um, you know,
0: coming into uh, this job as president of city council, I constantly talked about professionalizing the council in a way that we have not seen our Baltimore city council operate. Um, knowing that this council has been the body, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago that had enacted policies that have negatively impacted our communities, but also structured it in a way where we can be like the legislative prescription of cure for some of the ills in our city. What, for me and for like my colleagues on the council and the perspective that you have working in city hall, uh, being a leader in our community for so long, you know, what do the citizens really, really need
1: from this, this council? Uh, the most important thing from my point of view, uh, besides the, the policies that you might propose, is to take your oversight responsibilities very seriously. Um, because if city agencies know that they're really gonna have objective scrutiny and not just you know, from time to time uh, getting criticized for something, but real objective scrutiny, it helps them to uh, respond to the citizen better. Uh, knowing that there's, there's somebody that's going to be, you know, look uh, looking over their shoulder in a regular uh, uh, fashion. So that's one thing. The second thing is really boring, though, for a lot of people. But the uh, the, the budget is policy. So if if um, the uh, council members really want to be successful, they've got to know the ins and outs of the policy. Where are all those revenue streams coming from? And uh, uh you know, and how the spending is really uh, occurring. because if you don't know, then you end up kind of being an outsider just looking in from from time to time. And then finally, I, I do think uh, there are uh, opportunities for real uh, legislative proposals. I, I remember the uh, living wage uh, law that uh, we um, uh, passed. Uh, came not from an initiative of my administration, but came from the council. We w- ended up working together to um, uh, to uh, reach you uh, know uh, a, a good conclusion on the living wage law. But uh, that did uh, start as a uh, as an initiative from the council. So I see opportunities for you know policy change there. But uh, the the policies really have to uh, uh, come from a, a clear understanding of. Of the budget, because bottom line, and you you know this already, uh, Mr. President, you've got more will than wallet. And- yeah, <laughs> say that
0: again. <laughs> and, and you know, with this new charter amendment um, that uh, was passed, that gives now the council budgetary power in 2022, um, the dynamic really kind of shifts a little bit. Um, and you know, we've really been pushing and working with the administration, and what I call my my partner in progress, Mayor Brandon Scott on again, developing a council with the personnel to kind of deal with this new role and responsibility of that. Um, But you're exactly right. uh, Particularly when talking to new council members of the role that we're gonna have to play moving forward from an oversight perspective, but now also now having the budgetary authority of directing money. Uh, And the need is much greater than the, the, the arrows in which you can use to direct.
1: More will than wallet, that's (laughs) it.
0: So so I guess kind of still sticking on this point of like growing the city of Baltimore uh, and like looking at advice, when we talk about like in the eighties and nineties in comparison to now, you know, African-American businesses in comparison to other parts of the country are struggling. Um, You look at like some of the booms in say like Atlanta or in Washington, DC or in Charlotte. uh, And then you compare where we were then Uh, during your time as mayor uh, to where we are today. Um, What do you think the biggest issues are around that uh, growth of African-American? i I give you one stat. I believe uh, like 30 years ago in Black Enterprise, there was like 13 of the top 100 Black businesses in the city of Baltimore. Uh, You know, we have uh, Mr. Eddie Brown doing really well. That's not really considered a service industry or business. He's in the financial industry. And then we also have Bith uh, Energy that uh, is on that list. So we only have one out of the top 100 in America in the city today. Um, what do you think the limitations have been? Is there anything that you kind of look back that wish you would have done differently? And then is there any advice for us so in 30 or 40 years we can have a tremendous amount of representation on that list? Well, let's
1: think about today and tomorrow moving forward. Uh, I just happened uh, to be at a meeting of the um, Board of Directors of the Greater Baltimore Committee, and they were talking about uh, this whole issue of uh, minority business generally, but uh, diversity and equity and inclusion in general, and they are looking for ways in which uh, that can be improved, and I think that the Baltimore City Council has a leadership role to play there. Uh, I obviously, I know that you all are going to do all you can to expand opportunities when it involves public sector contracting. but I think that you can also be uh, encouraged the private sector in, in uh, Baltimore and the Baltimore region to uh uh invest more and be partners with uh the minority uh business uh, community uh, particularly african-american businesses so uh having um conversations with uh, the financial industry uh the banks and and others about access to capital uh you could probably uh hold some good hearings on that and see where where people are and um then partnering with the GBC, I, I really do think that that's, that's important to uh, uh, have them. You're, you're not going to agree on everything. This particular issue, I think that you can uh, find uh, common ground in the partnership to encourage the private sector, uh, to, because that's where the money is, not just uh, the budget of uh, uh, Baltimore City government.
0: Why do you think Baltimore didn't take off like Atlanta or, or, or D.C. when we compare... What we have today versus where, where we were 30, well, 40 years
1: ago. One of the things, if you recall, there was a major change in the Supreme Court. There was a decision called the Croson uh, case that changed the whole outlook on um, a minority business. Prior to um, the uh, uh, Crozon uh, decision, uh, you were able to set up a, uh, a, a business set aside uh, programs that were focused, that were racially focused. After Crozon, you had to go through all kinds of hoops in order to do that. And um, in, in fact, uh, uh, there was kind of a disinclination to support those programs by a more conservative court. So that was a, a, a key issue. But the second thing is that uh, Baltimore was hit with globalization in a way that Atlanta, with their big airport and everything, was not. Um, we, during the time that I was uh, mayor, mo- most of our major banks became acquired by other banks. So instead of having headquarters here where you could go talk to the president of the bank uh, and say, hey, you know, as your civic duty, um, you should improve access to capital for minority businesses. No, you had to now go to Ireland or to Charlotte, North Carolina or to Pittsburgh. Um, And so the whole uh, economic climate in Baltimore uh, changed during that time in a way that... uh, it didn't affect Atlanta nor DC. And of course, DC with that permanent uh, federal government, uh, they're expanding all the time and contracting all the time. You have a very different situation.
0: I always think about if Baltimore still owned Friendship Airport or what we know as BWI today, uh, when people start talking about you know infrastructure and selling off city assets,
1: yeah. imagine
0: if we own uh, Thurgood Marshall BWI today, You know what that would mean uh, for the city.
1: Sure. That's, well, that's, as you know, where um, uh, Maynard Jackson is mayor of Atlanta. Um, a lot of the contracts that ultimately led to expansion of minority business there had to do with Hartsfield, with well, now yeah. Jackson. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he said, I, I don't I don't
0: control the operations of this airport, but I control the water.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, that, that's the story uh, I received. Yeah. Well, you have a base, you know, and you had other... Uh, a businessman, Herman Russell and some others down there that had- A,
0: a Tuskegee man.
1: You got man. it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he he's a, a wonderful uh, man. I, I don't know if you, you met him, but uh, Mr. Russell had um, speech impediment and um, sometimes uh, uh, people didn't think that he was uh, quite uh, articulate. Enough and uh, but he was very successful and he once said to me, "I would rather uh, say to somebody that I is rich rather than I am poor." (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's a good quote. Well, I I know you don't have a whole lot of time. We're going to wrap up. Um, And again, thank you for joining the inaugural podcast. But you know, in all seriousness, where we are in our country, you know, a year out from COVID nineteen. and we know that there will be long-term impacts, the residual impacts to mental health, behavioral health, education, right. um, our economy. Um, this virus has really like crippled us in ways that I don't think a year ago folks would imagine. Um, just, again, from an advice perspective, we're talking to the citizens of Baltimore. Um, what best course of action regarding like stability in our communities when we kind of talk about all those things? Uh, do you... Um, Do you you advise us on? I would assume that there has to be some level of like priority. You know, what's the long pole in the tent? What's the low hanging fruit? What's going to serve as the biggest impact? But with 61 percent of our children who are chronically absent from public schools uh, in the ninth grade uh, to, again, mental health issues where we've seen a twofold increase of completed suicides by African-Americans last year during the peak. Uh, to the housing instability uh, type of issues that we know we're gonna get once we come out of some of the emergency lifts. You know, I guess what would be your closing out advice to, to
1: me and my colleagues and to the citizens of Baltimore about moving forward? Well, you're right about uh, the challenges, but uh, uh, Mr. President, throughout your campaign, you talked about the positive things, where we could go as a community. And it really is important for elected officials to keep talking about the strengths and not just the weaknesses of the city, because you get more people involved and that's what you need is community involvement on all these issues that you've just talked about. So I strongly urge you to keep being positive, recognize that there are solutions that will come. They may not come quickly, but they, they really uh, will come. The uh, lifting people's uh, spirit and letting them know that you're working on these problems and that Um, the better days are definitely coming um, is so important and keep the the spirit of uh, a can-do spirit uh, as as you work on all these problems well uh, Mayor
0: Schmoke uh, you have not disappointed us at all thank you for uh, joining the inaugural edition of the podcast notes from the council chambers Um, we have a lot of work to do um, but we have tremendous amount of variables to grow an amazing city Uh, I know that you get up every single morning uh, as president of the University of Baltimore with that on your mind, as well as uh, I do. And I think collectively we will be able to do it. So, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You know, somebody that I've looked up to since I was eight years old. Uh, And you have always been a man of your word. You've always been a man to, to try to deliver for your community. And I just thank you for taking the opportunity and sitting down with me today to talk
1: about it. All the best to you and I know you're gonna succeed.
0: Well, thank you so much, Mayor Schmoke.
1: Thank you for listening to Notes from the Council Chambers Podcast with President Nick J. Mosby. You can listen to this and all future episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, then please subscribe and stay tuned.